Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manesh. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Frank Furman. Thank you, Victor. Appreciate you having me. Great to have you here. Now, Frank, you made a transition from the military into the world of real estate investing, and you're involved in a very unique product offer. But before we dive into the details, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Sure. So I was a, I was an infantry officer in the Marine Corps for seven years. I did two tours in Afghanistan, commanded at the platoon and company levels, and spent some time in, in R&D. And really left, like most folks leave the military, kind of not really sure what I need to do. So I went into management consulting, kind of kicked the can down the road for a bit. So I worked for McKinsey in London for several years and, and with some other corporate roles. And it really kind of slowly got my way into sort of the real estate space. And then, of course, co-founded PadSplit in early 2018 around this idea of workforce co-living. I've been doing that ever since. Fascinating. So tell us a little bit about what PadSplit is and how it's a little bit different from some of the other co-living products in the market. Yeah. So what really is different about PadSplit is, first, is that we're focused on workforce. So what we are is a two-sided marketplace, not unlike an Airbnb or VRBO. What's different is that instead of being for short-term rentals um, for kind of temporary residents, we're for long-term residents and really around workforce housing. So the way that it looks like is instead of being fractional in terms of time, like an Airbnb, we're fractional in terms of space. It's essentially a room rental business. So what it looks like is investors will list their property on our platform, and then it, each room will be individually rented out by a renter. And the kind of folks who are renting those rooms are you know, frontline workers, people who work in retail, hospitality, security guards, teachers' aides, that sort of thing. Folks who are working, they're employed, we do background check, credit check, income verification, employment verification, but folks who typically are not making enough to afford a market rent, particularly in urban areas. So in the, in the markets we're in today, you know, you're Atlanta, Houston, Tampa, Jacksonville, Richmond, Virginia, New Orleans, these types of cities where you have folks, they're working, they're working full-time, they're doing their best, but uh, it just makes a lot of sense for them for various reasons to rent a room and share space. So that's what it looks like. And obviously investors work with us because they about doubled their yields. So average NOI increase is over 100%. And it's because you know, you're renting out in particular larger homes that would say six or more bedrooms for say 600 bucks or more a month. And you're really kind of seeing the results off that. So that sounds like a model that's maybe not that different from the student housing model in a lot of communities. How do you make sure that you don't run afoul of rooming house regulations in a lot of communities and make sure that you're on the right side of the zoning? That's a great question. So part of that is being very intentional about the markets that we enter. There's a case to be made that you could have, say, the, the Uber, the Airbnb model, which is to shotgun all over the country and kind of hope for the best. But ultimately, we're focusing on markets that are much more friendly on the regulatory front. So Atlanta, as an example, is some of the most permissive zoning in the country, the way that a family is defined and so on. Houston has no zoning at all, which is obviously very friendly to our model. So that's a big part of it. Another part of it is being receptive to neighbors and municipalities. So we have a neighbor's portal on our website. Neighbors can come in and complain if there's issues because really it's less a question of zoning. Co-living is in, is in a gray area in most places. The way that 
for example, in the county that I live in, in Georgia, they have a boarding house regulation, but it involves the provision of meals, which we don't do. So we're kind of in this gray area, to put it lightly. So it's more a matter of being responsive and responsible, of course. So we have higher safety requirements than normal building code. We have, you know, again, we're very responsive to neighbors. We respond to requests from municipal authorities and code enforcement, that sort of thing. Because ultimately what we found is that operators who are doing it well and who are being responsible, you know, making sure the grass is cut, making sure that the property looks good and people are parked in front of a neighbor's driveway or mailbox that it's being dealt with, those houses are are fine. And, you know, it's just like investing in any sort of rental property. If you do it well, you're typically allowed to operate without a ton of restraints. And if you do it poorly in a way that annoys your neighbors, it almost doesn't matter what the zoning is because you're going to get a lot of complaints and code enforcement tickets and that sort of thing. So it's it's really kind of starting across the board, both selecting the right kind of markets, selecting the right kind of sub-markets. And actually, we like to get involved with investors really early in the process, even at the level of, hey, does hear the risks of this property, it's in this municipality, or, hey, have you thought about this one? It's really far from public transit. You might end up with a lot of cars and that might upset neighbors. Getting involved even pre-acquisition through the renovation phase to make sure they're getting good outcomes that work for everybody. So these acquisitions are being purpose-built for the notion that it's going to be sublet on a per-bedroom basis. Mm -hmm. Of course, you've got access to the common elements if you are a tenant, but you're renting by the room, so to speak. How are the lenders receptive to this particular model? Because typically with a rental property, they want to see a single lease. Yep. And here you would have multiple leases potentially. The answer is it depends on the lender. We've been blessed with a lot of great relationships we've built over the last couple of years from lenders who look at it and say, hey, this is comfortable. The debt service coverage ratio is incredibly favorable. We see a long track record of leases. Of course, I, you know, in full disclosure, there are some lenders who have looked at this and thought, I mean, you know how this isn't a knock on underwriting, but it's the way that it is. You know, they like to see 1200 bucks on the first, 1200 bucks on the first, 1200 bucks on the first, and seeing 2500 bucks, then 2457 and 2795 just is, is kind of outside their experience. So it depends on the lender. We've got a few partners who've built a level of familiarity and, and confidence in the model over the last several years where they're to where they're comfortable with and it's gone through their underwriting process and legal. So we work very closely with investors who are going through the refi process. Because again, we we came out of the real estate investment space. So being able to get your money out is, is table stakes for us. We knew that we had to build a structure where investors could do that. So we we kind of built that in from the start. The whole industry started out, I mean, it's been commonplace for two folks to get together, split a two-bedroom apartment, and that's been happening forever without the help of anybody. For something like this, where you introduce more people, the chances are greater that at some point you're going to hate one of your roommates. How do you deal with that? Yeah, there's uh, there's no silver bullet. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I, I talk about with, whether it's concerned neighbors or municipal officials or so on who say, oh, you know, how can you have people, unrelated parties in a house? And I say, you've never done this before? I, you know, I, I was in the Marine Corps for years. You rent a house and you share it with your buddies or, you know, as a graduate student, this is the kind of thing that we did. The fact that I could do it as a relatively, you know, in relative terms, high social status individual, but for some reason, someone who's working in fast food can't seems, seems a little unconscionable. But you're right, you know, people are complicated and, and there's conflict. A few things that we do, first is we have relatively 
strict rules within our membership agreement with folks actually living in the houses. And they're really, they're not built to be strict just for fun or because I'm a, I'm a next Marine and I like making people's lives miserable, though there's some of that. It's really around reducing sources of temptation. So again, we like to get involved very early. We have a motto, bad things happen in, on couches, right? So you can imagine a woman, she's 38 years old, coming back from work, the night shift, she comes in and some guy's sleeping on the couch who she doesn't know, or two people are fighting over the remote, or people are making babies. It's all bad, right? So even during the renovation process, we're advising folks on how do you reduce these sources of conflict. You know, that's one. Or even simple things like solid surface flooring. You know, We like the, the insides of the house to be easier to clean. It's, it's sort of building in those operational abilities and that, that, that kind of maintainability that's very important. So that's certainly part of it, getting involved during the renovation phase. We have a 24-7 call center that handles member disputes, kind of between member disputes. So everything from, you know, Johnny ate my peanut butter to this person was supposed to take out the trash and they didn't. And honestly, what that team is trained to do is to de-escalate these situations. So we have a rating system. People can, you know, rate each other, thumbs up, thumbs down. Sometimes that's all people want to do. They just want to vent. Say, oh, Victor, you know, I give him a thumbs down. He, I, he got his. Sometimes people just want to vent to a person and that's fine too. You know, they just want to call and say, he looked at me funny and I like that. And you say, okay, great. And then of course, you know, we're encouraging people to have dialogue. There's a messenger app within our platform so they can just communicate with things like, hey, Victor, you're boxing me in in the driveway. Can you pull out so I can pull in that kind of thing, which allows for some diffusion. And then one of the kind of core strengths of our models that allows for transfers. So unlike a traditional lease, that's say a year where, you know, if you're stuck, you're stuck in our model because they're relatively short-term agreements. Folks can transfer between houses without really any penalty. So sometimes that's the release valve that people need. You know, it's, hey, you two clearly don't get along. Rating didn't work. Talking about didn't work. Maybe it's best that you don't live in the same house and that's real life. So that is also on the table for us. But there's, there's no perfect system. It's more about trying to keep it to a dull roar because people do uh, sometimes just not get along. You're really addressing the affordability crisis for folks that might fit in that category where, like you said, they're, they're employed. It's not necessarily a high-paying job, so they can't necessarily afford a place on their own. They're paying a little bit of a premium on a per-bedroom basis compared with what it would be if you were simply dividing the full rent, but much less than if they were renting a place all on their own. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's the part that we uh, fulfill in the market. Of course, we, we think it's a huge part of the market. I mean, singles are an enormous part of the rental market. They're very difficult to serve. There's a huge shortage of kind of smaller housing stock. Everyone knows that the cost of your kind of Class C apartments have been rising like crazy over the last several years. So where it's easier for families or bigger groups to find kind of suitable rental stocks, it's much, much harder for singles. So that's part of what we do. And yeah, and the average income for our members is about $25,000 a year. So again, it's people who are working who kind of struggle to pay the $1,000 a month or $1,100 a month, plus utilities, plus security deposits, plus lack of flexibility that comes with it. So, you know, again, when you look at our members, you oftentimes see a lot of folks who are new to town. So people have moved to Atlanta or moved to Houston or moved to New Orleans for work, and they don't have social network. They can't sleep on a friend's couch or stay with family because they're new to town. People have gone through some sort of family trauma, like divorce, that kind of thing. We end up with a lot of folks like that. Or young folks just getting their start. You know, they 
they're tired of mom's rules. You know, they want to strike off on their own, but maybe they don't really have enough for the the credit score, the the track record of the savings to get their own place right away. That's fascinating. So from a pure investment standpoint, you're focusing clearly when you're dealing with kind of that entry level in the market, you've got to be optimizing the cost structure and making sure that you're really sharpening your pencil to make sure that you're maximizing the returns for investors. I mean, we, again, we came out of the real estate investment space and the, and the single family rental space. So that's kind of where our heads are always at. We're in multifamily as well, but predominantly single family homes. But what it ultimately looks like is you're optimizing for essentially the number of bedrooms that you can get in a, in a given footprint. And oftentimes that means, you know, capturing and monetizing underutilized space. And that's part of what our implementation and sales teams are, are helping folks with. So it might be finishing off a basement, right? We have a lot of uh, sort of basement units that that are great, or uh, sometimes a garage or a living room or a, you know office or billiard room, I don't know, whatever they have these days. But taking that space that now makes it more profitable for the investor or more affordable for, for the renter. I like to be close to public transit because that's a huge benefit to the demographic we serve on the, on the member side. It also reduces the number of cars, which is better for neighbors. It's really kind of a mix of all those things, but it really is built around how do you create value for investors? When you do that, investors get rewarded. I was going to ask about parking because I know that from a density standpoint, whenever we're undertaking new development, the number one constraint on density is always parking, but in your demographic, it might be different. Yeah. I mean, one of the really frustrating things about city planning and development and and zoning is kind of currently constituted is, you know, for example, in in Atlanta, where where I'm based out of, if you want to have a new apartment, you need at least 760 square feet and a parking spot for every apartment. Well, a parking spot in the city is, you know, you're probably talking $40,000. You're tacking on to the cost of every single unit. And tell you what, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have two kids, one on the way, we've got a minivan, you know, we've got another car, like I get it, you know, it's a lot of people drive here. But when I look at the demographic we serve, they're the folks who, who take public transit. And that kind of one size fits all mentality is really counterproductive and, and prices a lot of people out of the market. So for us, of course, it's a little bit different because we're not building new apartments. So there's, there's less of it, but it's definitely a consideration. Again, as we get involved with investors, as they're looking at properties, Proximity to public transit is very important. If it's a corner lot, we like that because it's more street parking. Or is there legal street parking, which is mostly true in, in most parts of Atlanta? Or if there's parking around the back, I like that best of all. It's a little bit of a zoning consideration. It's a little bit of a optimization, but it's really about how do you mitigate risk of neighbor complaints and of uh, too many people having a challenge finding a spot and walking too far. So there's a little bit of an art and science to it. I love it. Well, it's a fascinating model. If folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Yes, the best way would be go straight to our website, www.padsplit.com. That's P-A-D-S-P-L-I-T. And, or you can just reach out direct to sales at padsplit.com or for me personally, such as it's useful at all, frank at padsplit.com. We're not, we're not too imaginative on that front, but yeah, I would love to chat through. And we've taken many investors from kind of very initial interest, the first time they're hearing about co-living or workforce housing or affordable housing, all the way through to sizable portfolios that provide $10,000, $20,000 a month. Fantastic. Well, Frank, love the perspective, love what you're doing. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Frank. Visit his website at padsplit.com. That's padsplit.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.